in our series of, uh, this is our Advent series, and we uh, started with Ben Hine was here, and he talked about the promised Savior to come to, to fix that which was broken in the beginning. And, uh, and we've looked at that Savior, that ultimate Savior is Jesus Christ, who has what theologians for a number of years have called three offices, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And we looked at prophet the first week, that he is the one who is, is truth and declares truth as the foundation of what we know. And then last week we talked about the fact that he was the final and ultimate high priest that offered sacrifice for sin once for all uh, for those of us who trust in him. And this week we're talking about Jesus as the king. Uh, in this Christmas season, one of the reasons that we're doing this is it's really helpful to think about who is Jesus? Who is this that we celebrate that comes as a baby in Bethlehem, born in a manger? We, we know the nativity story. Uh, who is it? And why does it matter that this baby was born? Uh, imagine that I was uh, uh, at the grocery store and I ran into somebody that I recognized from the neighborhood. We're both trying to pick out the best produce. Um, and we get to talking and he says, you know, why don't I, uh, get some food and I'll come over to your house and, and I'll fix your whole family, uh, a meal, uh, in this week leading up to Christmas would be, a, you know, a celebration. Uh, depending on how well I know the person, I would think, oh, okay. And so I get to tell you this story of the person that, uh, offered to do this. He comes over and he cooks a meal and it was, you know, it was fine. And our time with him was fine. It's a great story um, that would be, right? It would be a little bit different story uh, if this, you know, this guy's not that great a cook, the, the meal is fine. Uh, you know, it, it would be maybe a terrible uh, story if the meal was horrible or really good, but just, it's, you know, it's mediocre, whatever. Uh, but imagine that I was at the grocery store and I was picking out produce and I recognized somebody and struck up a conversation. And I recognized that it was Tom Colicchio. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but he is a celebrity judge on Top Chef, he's a celebrity chef. He has multiple restaurants that are uh, acclaimed by foodies. And, uh, he, and, and imagine that I was talking to him and he said, why don't I you know, get some food and I'll come over and fix your family a meal. It would be a totally different story and I would be super excited about that. I'd be like, come on, yes, absolutely. Come fix us a meal and I'd be able to tell you about the things that he picked out. And we, we were at, uh, at, at Whole Foods, so the food's all gonna be like top quality. Uh, and, um, and, you know, tell you all about it, right? Uh, the, the reality is the story changes pretty dramatically depending on who that person is and what their ability to cook a meal for us is. Uh, it, it changes the whole story. And as we celebrate, one, as we celebrate this baby born in a major in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, uh, it matters deeply who he is. And he is absolutely that baby in a manger, but he is much, much, much more than that. And that's what we've been talking about, prophet, priest, and now king. And, and the reality is, even as we talked about him being the prophet, the one who claims to be the truth, and as he is the priest, the one who claims to be able to offer sacrifice once for all for those who trust in him, it, it matters deeply that he is what we're talking about this week, the king, which means that he's able to actually accomplish those things which he's promised he will do. If he's not the king, if he can't make sure that these things happen, then his desire to be our sacrifice or our priest or the prophet who, who proclaims truth doesn't really matter because he's not actually able to accomplish what goes with that. But if he is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who reigns and rules over all things and has that kind of power, then all of the other 
promises and declarations are both trustworthy and certain. We can look to those with hope. And so we find here this passage of a warrior king. One of the things that we talk about at at Christmas is that Jesus didn't come as the king that was expected, right? They were expecting a warrior king 2,000 years ago. They were expecting uh, a, a king to come and to bring freedom to Israel, to free them from Roman rule, right? That was what they were looking for, and that's not what they got. They got this humble, sacrificial king. But we find here in Revelation 19, this picture, this metaphorical picture of something that is to come, we find that he actually is a warrior king, that he will return as that warrior king. And this is a picture of the second advent of Jesus. We celebrate during this time, and what we've been doing even over these last few weeks, is focusing on the first coming, the first advent of Jesus. In the church calendar, actually originally, advent was kind of the end of the calendar year, and it looked to the second coming of Jesus. And then it started over with his birth, right? That was the way the calendar year worked. Here, we focus typically with advent on his first coming, but today we're going to talk about some of his second coming and how they connect, right? He's coming again, and he's coming as this warrior king. He's coming to what we find here is battle against evil in order to make all things right. And what we'll find is that he comes, and he comes as the king that we want, really as the king that we need. Because the king that we want sometimes overlaps with the king that we need, and sometimes it doesn't. So let me pray for us, and we'll look at those two points, the king that we want and the king that we need. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to you and your reign and rule that we might humble ourselves before you, that we might bow lowly before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the king that we want, we we do want a powerful king. And that's the picture we get here. We get this glorious picture. uh, Verse 11, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And then he goes on to describe in verse 12 that his eyes are like flames of fire and he has many diadems, many crowns on his head. This is a glorious picture of him coming in power. And the, and the rest of verse chapter 19, I'm sorry, the rest of chapter 19 is Jesus waging war on the beast and the evil powers that exist. And, it, and again, this is, uh, we, could, we could spend a long time talking about a couple of things that I think are helpful for us to know. One is these titles that are used to describe this rider on the white horse are very clearly titles that were used to describe Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. We're following the passage of the uh, picture of the marriage supper of the lamb. That is this picture of in the end, those who are his people will be invited to this incredible celebration, this, this marriage, this wedding celebration where his bride, the church, uh, is joined together with the bridegroom that is Jesus. And we're moving to chapter 21, which uh, tells us of heavens, the new heavens come to the new earth, and all things made right, and God will be with his people as their people, and uh, there will be no more crying, or no more pain, or no more death, because the former things have passed away. All things will be made right. This is a part of that story. And so here is Jesus entering into that story. It's also helpful for us to note that the the book of Revelation is full of a lot of metaphorical language and imagery. Uh, It is not 
written as uh, historical narrative. Some parts of scripture are historical narrative, and so we understand those as actual events that happen in the way that they're described. We, we don't necessarily expect that Jesus is going to be on a white horse and that his heavenly armies will also be on white horses and, uh, and, and those uh, kinds of things will happen literally. Uh, the, we, and, and what matters is that we understand how this particular scripture was written. We uh, look at prophecy in a different way from poetry, in a different way from historical narrative, from teaching, uh, and we spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, how is this written and what is supposed to be communicated, and then we understand it in light of that. And so here we have this picture of something to happen in the future, but it's this picture of the spiritual battle that is happening. And so Jesus comes into that. He's the rider on the white horse. And some of this imagery really matters because he's on a white horse. That, that is a picture of victory. So even at the very beginning of this passage, we see that there's, there's almost the foregone conclusion I mean, we find that with the rest of this uh, book. The foregone conclusion is that he is the victor, that he is going to win. And so he comes in his power. He is going to win. He comes in all of this glory. And, uh, and, and there's something about that that we want. We, we long for, oftentimes, leaders who are powerful and able to accomplish um, what we hope would be accomplished, right? And, and we find it oftentimes, you know, the... The, the sad thing is that we want that so much that we're willing to overlook leaders, um, let's say, their, their shortcomings uh, in order to follow. And this can, this can happen politically. It happens in churches, sadly, that we, we overlook either things said or things done because they're powerful because they get things done. It's, it's particularly sad in the church. If we, we, we see uh, somebody being successful, the numbers are coming in, the budget's going up, people are... Uh, even having spiritual success, uh, at times uh, there could be a tendency to overlook, even in the church, the leader's uh, mistakes, the things that they either say or do wrong. That, that's one of the reasons as we move through this whole process of particularization that we talk about uh, the fact that there's, a, there's mutual accountability between uh, different elders, between members and elders, from tra- pastors to ruling elders, all uh, our, accountability in our presbytery. It's all of these things recognizing there is this natural tendency in us to want a powerful leader and to sometimes overlook uh, things that aren't helpful. That speaks to a desire for something that is right and good, a powerful leader. And what we have here, in contrast to human leaders who might make mistakes or do make mistakes, depends on uh, how big those are, right? Because every human being is, uh, is sinful and makes mistakes. Uh, we find even last week, as we talked about Jesus as the great high priest, it was in contrast to the high priest that came before him that had to offer sacrifice for their own sin. Jesus didn't have to do that. Here's the leader, the perfect leader, the leader that comes in righteousness. In uh, in righteousness, he judges and makes war, verse 11. He is the perfect king, and he is powerful. And there's something that, that we naturally desire a leader like that. And it's because we have that leader in, in Jesus. So our desire for other earthly leaders often flows from our desire for an ultimate leader. But here we have that perfect one. Because there is a picture even here of us joining with him in the work that he's doing. In verse 14, there is his heavenly army. And, and I think the best way that we can understand that is both the angelic hosts that come alongside him, but also those that are a part of his 
uh, church throughout history uh, join with him in the spiritual battle. We find that picture as well in Ephesians 6, where we're called to put on the armor of God and join with him in the spirit. Not a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. So we're not talking about the crusades here. We're talking about spiritual battle um, that we join in with our heavenly leader, that perfect king, that king of kings, that lord of lords, that one who is working all things toward the end of breaking down the broken people and systems and moving evil out and bringing in that picture of Revelation 21 where all things are made right. There's no more crying or death or pain anymore. We cannot even begin to fully imagine what that will be like. But that's what he's working toward here. That is, as we think about Jesus as a baby that we celebrate at Christmas time, we know that it's leading to this. He is a full-orbed, even beyond what we could imagine, being that it's not just that baby, right? I can't help but think of uh, Talladega Nights and Ricky Bobby sitting around the table with his family and his friend, Cal Naughton Jr., and they're giving grace. And Will Ferrell's character, Ricky Bobby, he just loves to pray to baby Jesus. You know, eight pounds, six ounce, wrapped in your golden fleece diaper, Jesus. This is how he prays, right? And there are people getting upset. His father-in-law is like, he was a man. He had a beard. And then Cal Naughton Jr. says, I like to pray to, uh, to Jesus. I like to picture him with a tuxedo shirt because he's formal, but he likes to party. Uh, and that's how I like my Jesus. And, and it's, it is a hilarious scene. And, and it's still actually a picture of what we do with Jesus. We like to take bits and pieces and, uh, and picture him in the way that we want to. We, we really, what we do is instead of recognizing that we're created in the image of God, we begin to form him in our own image and think about him in the way that we want to. So when we think about the king that we want, we get to these parts that make us feel uncomfortable. We, we, like thinking about the, the beautiful, the silent night, holy night, you know, away in a manger um, uh, and how, how cute it is. No, you know, no crying he makes. This probably wasn't true. And... Um, <laughs> You know, it's all so sweet, right? And we'd like to just focus in on that. We're, we're like, we're with Ricky Bobby on that, right? But here we have one who judges and makes war, who has a, a, a robe dipped in blood because he is treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. That, that makes, I'm not sure that's the one I wanted. I'm not sure that's the Jesus I wanted, right? Like we, we, we struggle with that. This, this king who judges and makes war. And, and the reality is what, what we want, uh, I've talked before about uh, the podcast, This Cultural Moment, and John Mark Comer, uh, they, they talk about the fact that um, what we want is the kingdom of God. That is all the benefits of God's uh, kingdom, his reign and rule, but we don't want the king because he challenges parts of us that we don't like. And, and they talk about there, we could do like a whole history lesson on why our culture values uh, the sanctity of like individual humans and their value, that, that we as individuals have value um, and they separate that from being created in the image of God now. Uh, and we, we desire justice and mercy. We would say those are good things. And our, our culture just says, yeah, obviously those are good things. Um, but... We, we, we don't want the king because the king then pushes in different ways, ways that we don't like, we're not as comfortable with. We want the kingdom without the king. 
and, uh, and they do a great job, and uh, a lot of folks do a great job actually of talking about it. Like, we wouldn't have those values if it weren't for Christianity, if it weren't for the king and the influence of the church on our, our culture and on our history. But what we're called to as followers of Jesus is to embrace the king, to bow before him, uh, uh, even on those places that are a bit uncomfortable. I mean, even thinking about, uh, uh, thinking about our confession of faith, we're using um, the, the New City Catechism, and, and we're reading through the Ten Commandments right now, right? It's like, oh, that's, I don't know, that seems just too, too rigid, too legalistic. Um, and and the, the scripture is full of things that can be difficult uh, about how we should live our lives and the ways that our lives should be shaped by the king. The way that we live out our relationships and our sexuality and our finances and our time and all of those things are actually to be dictated by the king himself. That we would find ourselves uh, as we prayed, as we sang in O Holy Night, behold your king. Before him, lowly bend. We, we sometimes like the idea, oh, yes, the king, but uh, I've got a lowly bend before him. I have to humble myself. I, I don't know that I, I really love that idea. But that's our temptation. Jen Wilkin, in her book, In the Image of God, says, when the children of God choose to forget the terror of divine judgment, which we have here, they fashion God in their own image. They fashion God in their own image. That is our, our temptation because we want to forget the things that are a little bit uncomfortable for us. Ultimately, the, the, what we really want is we want a king when he's doing the things that we want because we want to be king. We want to be in control. And that goes all the way back to Ben Hind preaching on Genesis 3, the fall. The fall is all about wanting to be in control. And that is at the root of all of us and our rebellion against God. We want to be in control. And so even as we think about God coming as the judge, making war, we, we might even think, okay, I'm not comfortable with that here and here and here. And here's the place that, the, that he should judge. And here's the place that he should judge. But maybe not here and not here. Particularly when it comes to me and my own heart. But we're called to lowly bend before the king. Uh, and, and sometimes that pushes against that, you know, you got to be true to yourself. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Those are the things that we hear. But there's uh, uh, this call to humble ourselves, that there are moments where we are going to be challenged. Every single one of us, there are places where if there is a true king, and particularly if he is the creator and he is holy and perfect and we are not and we rebel, there are going to be places where we are not going to like what the king says, or the way that the king works. That's just, that's the nature of a king. Otherwise, we just need a buddy, right? Maybe a strong friend. And Jesus is absolutely our friend and our father, but he is the king. And he's ultimately the king we need. Here's the beautiful thing, because sometimes we don't really like, we don't want this particular king, but ultimately what is good is that he is the king that we need. Here's the picture, the heavens I saw the heaven opened. This is this picture goes back to Ezekiel 1. It goes back to the baptism of Jesus. Heaven is where God is. It's not, you know, the clouds and the harp and just this goal of a place to get. Heaven is where God is and all of his power and all of his glory. And the heavens open up and they reveal this picture of the warrior king Jesus and all of his power. And we see it with his eyes, the flame of fire. We see it with the many diadems that he has on his head. I mean, there's, there's a sense that we, we can't even really picture the glory of what John is seeing at this moment and trying to describe for us. 
There is a deep mystery to God and his power and glory to the point we actually see that hinted at uh, in verse 12 when it's described his eyes like flame of fire and his head many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is speaking to the mystery of God. We get a number of his names, faithful and true, king of kings, lord of lords. But there's this name that, that others don't even know. And it's just speaking to the mystery of this King Jesus. This part that we do not and cannot understand. And it is something that we should be in awe of. This God comes in all of his power and all of his glory to judge and make war. Yes, to have the sharp sword come out of his mouth to judge the nations and then to reign and rule with a rod of iron. This is this picture of God and all of his glory that uh, should humble us before him. And it should excite us and give us hope because we're going to see that it actually works for our good. The judgment comes and we're still uncomfortable with that, right? But what his judgment is doing is is it's actually moving toward that good and beautiful end that we're going to see in Revelation 21. All things made right, no more crying, death, or pain. What what has to happen for, for us to get there is evil... And brokenness and sin and rebellion against God, all of that stuff has to be dealt with. And, and, it, and it can't just, oh, it doesn't matter. So let's just, let's just move past it. That's not, the, we, we, if we've tried to do that in our lives, it does not work. What we have here is God bringing judgment in order to get rid of the evil and brokenness and get to the good. Some of us, maybe a lot of revelation, including this passage, uh, uses language from uh, Old Testament prophetic books. And Uh, Isaiah is one where we find uh, a a lot of these ideas. And some of us may be familiar with uh, Isaiah chapter 11 with this picture. This is is, uh, what we might be familiar with. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Uh, It goes on to say, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's this beautiful picture of peace. It's a baby playing over a cobra's den and it's fine. It's animals that uh, would would fight each other and kill each other uh, coexisting together. It's this peaceful, beautiful picture of what is to come. Right before that is this picture of judgment. What takes to get there with righteousness. So Isaiah 11, verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, now let's be honest. We, we read this and there are parts about, yes, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's righteousness, good, yes. Um, he's going to do it with, with equity. All right. Um, he's going to strike the earth, the rod of... Uh, seems a little too much. Um, he's going to kill the wicked. Uh, you know, there are parts about it that we like. What we do is we find ourselves in the place of wanting to be the judge. Of the one who is claiming to be the judge because he actually defines what is true. He is faithful and true. Uh, that's part of his title in verse 11 of Revelation 19. He is righteousness itself. And we want to decide what is righteous and good. 
We, don't, we do not like the idea of him defining it, of his judgment coming when it, when it isn't exactly the way we would do it. But what we're called to is to see this baby born at Christmas time is the one who comes uh, as the warrior king to bring justice, to bring righteousness to bear. And he, he decides what is righteous. We, we have to recognize that if it's not him, it, it, it could be anywhere. And, and, and we find in our culture, it's always different. Like through time, what is right or good or even morality. And just think about in my own lifetime, it, it, when I was growing up, the church was seen as, as the, the moral place. And I just don't like your morals would be a rejection of that. But now the, the normal storyline is that the church is, is immoral because of, uh, of positions on biblical sexuality or uh, of the you know, proclamations or stances that we might take. It's like you're the immoral place. It just shifts according to culture. And, and that doesn't mean, unfortunately, it doesn't mean that the church isn't full of immorality at times. That there isn't great brokenness. That there aren't things that we need to turn away from. That we don't need to, to think about the fact that actually every single one of us, including those of us in the church, have uh, significant problems. That we have sin and wickedness in us that does need to be judged. We don't like that idea, but that is the reality. Every one of us in our own hearts has rebellion against God, holds what we call sin or evil in there. And what we need is this judge to come in and to remove that evil, as painful as it might be. If you, have, if you find out that you have a cancerous tumor, you want to get it taken care of. And what does it take to take care of and deal with and move somebody to health? It requires one of three things, either surgery or chemo or radiation or a combination of all three. And all of those things destroy and tear apart in order to, to ultimately to move toward health. To have surgery to remove a cancerous tumor is to, to rip open a body and get to wherever that tumor is and then remove it. Radiation breaks down. Chemo does the same thing, right? But in order to move to health, that's what God in his judgment is doing. And it can be painful and it can be on some level destructive, but it moves us toward health. But not only that, not only is he doing that judgment in, in order to remove the evil and the brokenness, and that's evil people, and that's evil systems, and that's all of the brokenness in this world that he would be getting rid of. Not only is he doing that, he's, he's, he is working in such a way that that judgment, and we've talked about, that all of us deserve judgment, every single one of us. But that judgment is poured out upon Jesus himself. Let's remember the context. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're two chapters removed from chapter 17. And Revelation 17, 14 says that the Lamb is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the same title that we see in verse 16, we find in Revelation 17, 14, when it's talking about Jesus as the Lamb. And why is he called the Lamb? He's called the Lamb because he is that once and for all sacrifice that we talked about last week. That he came as a baby to die, to be that sacrifice. He came in order that the judgment would be poured out upon himself and not upon his people. So that we can look to the judgment. We can know that we deserve it. We can be uncomfortable with that. And we can know that that judgment is being poured out upon Jesus himself. He is the one who is faithful and true. 
verse 11. He's faithful. He is, in a sense, faithful to God, to himself, to the Father and the Spirit and to himself. But he's faithful. And we see the faithfulness of God talked about in Scripture. It's because he's being faithful to his people. He's being faithful to those who are faithless, who have turned from him, who will continue to make mistakes. God is being faithful. And he's being faithful by drawing us into relationship with himself, by taking the judgment upon him. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the way that he guarantees that is he comes into this world as a baby. The warrior king with all that power, with all of that glory, with all that mystery that we cannot understand, he humbled himself to become a baby. He lived, he died, he was born. We celebrate that life so that he would die, so that his body would be broken and his blood would be poured out so that that once for all sacrifice would forgive us of our sin so that we might have incredible hope. Hope in Christmas season, yes, but hope all year long because the judgment was poured out upon him so that we might be a part of this story of seeing evil removed, moving toward Revelation 21, where all things are made right and there's no more crying or death or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And that's a mystery that we cannot fully comprehend as we can't fully comprehend yet God's glory. Jesus' glory as this warrior king. We can't comprehend what it's going to mean when he's in full control, reigning, when he's implements his full control in a way that removes all evil. But that's the promise of the birth of Jesus. That's the promise of his death. That's the promise of him as the warrior king bringing judgment and making war so that we can find our hope in him and that we can even now join in with it. We can be a part of that work now. That's the Ephesians 6, putting on the full armor of God, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, that we can be a part of this spiritual battle now, knowing the ultimate outcome because Jesus is the king and we get to follow him. Let me pray.